This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system announcing the commencement of the annual purge sanctioned by the U.S. government. Commencing at the siren, any and all crime, including murder, will be legal for 12 continuous hours. Blessed be our new founding fathers and America, a nation reborn. May God be with you all. and ghouls. Lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more with your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hey, I'm Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to episode 239. This time around, you're hanging out with multi-award winning actor Josh Lucas at time of release his new film the Forever Purge is in theaters everywhere now. We discuss the emotional power of the lens of horror and genre to communicate and reflect. Get behind the choreography of tension, the mechanics of the world building of this fifth installment of the Purge franchise, and so much more. Plus, Josh's brush with the paranormal on the unforgettable classic Session 9 on the heels of its 20th anniversary. This is one story you will never forget. Episode 239 with Josh Lucas starts now. Help me! Help me! The purge is over, please! No, it ain't. This is insane. Nobody hear the sirens? There's no crime anymore. Anything goes. You rich can't hide behind your steel walls no more. Powerless. How's that feel? It's the real purge. The forever purge! 
Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studios, a tremendous actor whose compelling choices has brought us some of the most unforgettable and impactful moments ever on screen. His featured debut was alongside Ethan Hawke on Frank Marshall's Emmy-winning Alive. That was the spark that set off what continues to be an insane career of working on blockbusters with the most well-known creators and icons from Spielberg to Clint Eastwood and Ridley Scott to the passionate masterpieces and stories that have changed independent cinema forever. Here are some examples. In the year 2000, he starred in Mary Heron's cult classic American Psycho, Oscar-winning director Catherine Bigelow's The Weight of Water. The following year, he gave us a cerebral horror classic, Session 9, a movie nobody can stop talking about and discovering. Simultaneously, Ron Howard's multiple Academy Award winner, A Beautiful Mind. Everybody loves Sweet Home Alabama, Ang Lee's Hulk, David Gordon Green and Terrence Malick's Phenomenal Undertow, 2006's Glory Road, Jay Edgar, The Lincoln Lawyer, Ford vs. Ferrari, and that's just to name a few. His voice has been behind video games, the documentary films of the legendary Ken Burns, and an impressive range of stage and TV projects from off-Broadway to series including NBC's The Mysteries of Laura, Yellowstone, and The Firm. His latest is a fifth entry into the brutally terrifying and poignant Purge franchise. At time of release, The Forever Purge is in theaters everywhere July 2nd. We are honored to welcome one of its stars, the amazing Josh Lucas. Yeah! Woo! Yeah! I could give you credit. That's the best intro I've ever had in my life. Oh my wow. God! Dude. <laughs> I say, there was one that was not better, but it was pretty amazing. I got to be the 12th man for the Seattle Seahawks. And what they actually do is you go on this platform above the stadium. You like literally climb a, a ladder way above the stadium. And you're, you know, there's like 70,000 people at Century Link Field in Seattle. And they play a like three minute video introduction of your career. And then they, the music is pumping and like everything. And the audience is going crazy. And it was like, it's genuinely, I had my entire family there. We were all dressed up as Seahawks. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> wow. Like, huge like swooping thing. And they play this, you know, not as good as yours, I must say, but this, you know, career retrospective. And it was one of those profound, like favorite career moments ever, but that's a good one. I'm, I'm, Damn, I'm 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 honored. To wow, be here. Well, so are we, man. And again, thank you <laughs> yeah. so much for joining us, and congratulations on this amazing adventure. Now, you've been yeah. such an important part of horror film history. Everything you've done in the genre or in genre adjacent thrillers and the like has been these game changers. At the risk of having this be one of those, what attracts you to a role questions. What is your litmus test when it comes to a script? Are you looking for a certain feeling to get for yourself? Is it a twist? Is it well-constructed characters? What are the holes that you look to fill? You know, look, you guys, I I know your specialty is in in the genre, kind of particularly horror. So you guys probably have a a mass uh, understanding of it at a level that I don't. All I know is that I, I, I have this gut sense when I read something or when I see something that this thing is effective in terms of what it's doing, how it's moving me. The reason why I think we go to cinema is to be, is to, is to be made to feel right. Like whether it's a love story and, and the thing about horror and the thing about genre is that primarily it's a sense of tension, right? I think the greatest movies that I've experienced as, you know, as a film goer, and I look at, you know, the, the obvious classics, alien, the shining, you know, and what it was about those movies that got me. And you even can go to jaws is that there is this tension that just slowly builds, right. That 
that gets inside of you that you are so wrapped up in this movie experience that you, no matter what you're going through in your own life, it just disappears. Right. I mean, and that, that to me is what you search for. The purge, I will say is a little bit different because the purge had a very clear idea that I frankly wasn't that, uh, uh, I mean, I'd seen some of the movies I, I knew enough about it, but this one was different because the director said to me from the beginning, I, I want to do something. I want to reinvent the purge in a way I want to set it um, in a West. I want to re I want to do a, a horror Western, you know, using the constructs of the purge and using all these politics that I think that he had in his mind being a Mexican filmmaker with a primarily a Mexican cast. And the, when I first read this, the, the screenplay, first of all, they didn't tell me it was a purge film. It was called Borderline. It was about the murder. So they, they pitched it to me as a Mexican director telling a Western story. So it was about, you know, 20 minutes in where I was like, wait, this is a purge. So it was like such a like, whoa. And it was a very smart way that they, get, they, they brought it. And then and that's how they were thinking about it, actually, that from the beginning, that was their, their, their choice. And, you know, I'll be interested to see whether audiences feel that way. I know that there's a huge, you know, fan base for The Purge, but I also, I think, frankly, there are people who think those movies are too intense or too scary or too dark or too violent or too political or whatever. And so you, you, we have some, I guess, responsibilities to try and, I guess, overcome some of those hurdles at the same time, if that, if that makes sense. So the director was very clear on how he wanted to go about doing that. Well said about that. I will say that we're huge fans of the the entire franchise. We've seen every one of these films. And this one is got those those qualities that all the Purge movies do in the sense that it's honest, brutally honest, terrifyingly ugly. But the one thing that I find that this one really does different is it it really kind of elevates this message of hope. And we see that in your father's character. Will Patton, right, who plays Caleb and is just such a fantastic voice of that hope and reason. And there are messages of hope. One of the great lines in the film is we talking about the essence of what makes America great. We can take it all. We can learn it all and we can embrace it. What do you feel about that power that the film speaks on? Wow, that's a very good question. And it's a very interesting way to think about what the director and we all wanted to do with this movie. I think Jason Blum would say the same thing. I think James DeMonico, you know, it's easy for, I guess, particularly conservative or right-wing America to think that left-wing America isn't a patriot and vice versa, right? And I think one of the things that the movie does very clearly is from the immigrants perspective, as well as from the Texas ranch holders perspective, who my character is, is that they both have the same kind of hope and belief in America. And I think we as filmmakers do as well. Like we, we genuinely look, I, 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 I love this country and I've been able and lucky to travel all over the world. And I, you know, we're also troubled. I think, from every perspective about what's going on. And I think the purge movies are, are, you know, extraordinary um, cautionary tales that they're, they're taking the genre and really twisting politics on its head to tell these, you know, sort of horrifying cautionary tales about where America could go. The reality is, is that we made this movie about two years ago. So we made it pre COVID. We made it pre the election. We made it pre the insurrection. And so all of those different things, there, there are some moments when we were making the movie that I remember thinking, frankly, this is a bit far-fetched, right? It felt far-fetched. And 
the terrible reality that we've all faced in our country over the past year is that some of that stuff became uh you know maybe too close for comfort in a way i think that's what a lot of the reviews of the movie are talking about and that there's a mirror being shown uh, uh, uh on if you respect the movie that's what it's doing in a way it's show it's shining a mirror it's maybe a bit more than where we're at but unfortunately it's only a bit right and, and so there are many moments in the movie that I, when we were making them, was, you know, both aware of how uncomfortable they were, but I didn't realize in hindsight how powerful those same images and moments were going to become as our lives all unfolded during COVID and during the election and during all of it. Right. So, yeah. yeah. It's terrifying that the whole Purge franchise has become a constant pop culture anecdote throughout everything that's been going on you always will hear someone in the media or whatever saying the purge is happening the purge is going to finally be real one day and that's a honestly terrifying terrifying thing and in this film it really shows us that next step i look i've been asked not to talk particularly about the insurrection but i heard something very strange that during the insurrection one of the top trending um things on twitter was hashtag purge right And so there are these moments that our country is facing, obviously, where and DeMonico and Blum and the director and every one of us, we were you know, not aware of how those things were going to play out. But the politics of the country are the the divisions that we're in, you know, the racial strife, all of it. It's been growing and brewing for, you know, since the beginning of our country. So so here we are. And I guess to give respect to DeMonico is that. And Blum, for that matter, too, because I think those guys are really attempting to, to to talk about some of it using genre. And that's where, to go back to your first question, where you get really interested in a movie, right? Or a story. Um, if it's going to attempt to do something. I mean, I look at these great movies in my, you know, uh, my film going experience. I go back to Alien. You know, you look at Alien, it's just these this working class group of people who are going through this, you know, kind of normal day to day experience and that that movie is really talking about some very interesting things from a socioeconomic standpoint like you know if you, if you break them down and that's where the genre of movies particularly look why are they possibly the most powerful economic form of storytelling right now or maybe ever <laughs> you know, it's like so yeah yeah no it's true i mean they they have this magic of overcoming our inhibition of controlling our motor skills they always tap into something very primal and with that experience it triggers an emotional response while you're watching it and then you take that home and you reflect on it and i think that's another thing that makes them so powerful and especially these these purge films i mean you cannot walk out of a purge movie not talking about what you just saw with with you know who you're with it opens conversation every single time and there's not there's not many movies that that take you down that journey now talking about your journey that you take that dylan takes he he takes an incredible emotional journey through the film Working with Everardo, what was the process that he had with you in capturing his vision for that journey that that Dylan takes? Everardo said something I really loved from our first conversation. He said, you know, man, I want to hide diamonds in a storm. And like he believes that the purge are storms and that he was going to plant these diamonds in terms of the politics, in terms of the characters, in terms of things that you're talking about, about hope. Right. And so I do think that Dylan particularly is a 
a very unfortunate, I'm going to say this, common American male, particularly white American male of social economic means. He's a guy who does not see himself in any way as racist. In fact, he sees himself as a job creator who, who's giving, you know, who's giving opportunity to uh, immigrants. And he, he, he really, you know, he sees himself as, as the best of America. And in reality, I think one of the big incredible things that we've gone through in this country over the last year or years, obviously, is that those, those people are being, there's a reckoning happening, right? There's, there's a sense of, of saying, well, the things that you're saying or, or the words that you're using or the, you know, basically the idea that you have some special privilege doesn't really work anymore. And that a lot of people don't respect it. They don't like it. And the country obviously, and there are people frankly, who believe that it should be that way or even more so that way. So that's the fascinating, I think, battle that we're in, in the country. And that I think the movie really, um, how do I put it? It, 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 uh, dilutes that directly into this character, right? It makes that this character particularly, like, even his father doesn't think the things that this guy thinks, right? So, and then, you know, not to give much away, you get to go on an experience where it all shifts and that the people who I have sort of disrespected in through the experience of being a man growing, you know, older, suddenly become the people who are, I'm, I'm reliant on, right? And so, the power, the power shift happens. And, and I think all of that stuff is very precise from DeMonico and, and Everardo about what he's about, what they're saying. Look, I mean, look, not, you know, not to get into it, but there's this whole thing of like, we talk about as a country, you know, wanting to stop immigration, but the people who do so many of the jobs that we are so reliant on, even down to picking berries. Right. I mean, it's like, what, what, what are we talking about? Like, so I think this movie is playing in those realms. And, and my hope is that, my hope is that the left and the right watch this movie and that they both have appreciation for it and that it both causes somewhat of a, of a conversation inside of ostensibly what's just a really fun action movie. You know, like I, I read a cool review about it the other day that said, and I, I agree, this movie has much more in common with Mad Max than it does with Saw. Right. So those are that. And I think that's very true. Right. So, um, but it does absolutely clearly i think tell the consistent stories of what the purges are right and what the purges are attempting to why they're resonating culturally the way that they are and politically the way that they are when we talk about the purge i feel like we have to talk about the weapons because the purge always has such crazy weapons because people are defending themselves did you keep any of the props from the movie <laughs> i really wish i had a, a mask in particular some of the masks I mean, the masks alone are kind of the ultimate weapon. I mean, look at the way that they promoted the movie, right? Yeah. I mean, the masks are the, the powerful. And look, it's so strange that here we are as a country that's had, you know, a year of you know mandatory mask wearing. Here, the masks of the purge are so much of a, of a symbol and, and an idea. And I remember this great kind of conversation I had with some of the actors who were playing the purgers where I was like, so did you guys have a, a like, do you remember that fantastic scene in Tarantino's uh, which one was it? Where they all the the Ku Klux Klan all gets together and they talk about well, well, who sold your outfit? Did Bobby Johnny? He's like, well, this is itchy, right? So I just had this moment where I was like, can you imagine? There was a there was a Facebook session that was like, 
you know, on Thursday, we're all going to be getting together and Karen's going to be doing makeup because like, yeah, amazing makeup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, can you imagine those Facebook uh, calls and be like, well, you know, Karen's doing makeup and so-and-so sewing masks and we got the armory team over here because if you want to have your weapon painted, you know, anyone who needs to pick up a, a you know, can of, of spray paint, we'll be giving out spray paint at four o'clock on Friday. <laughs> That's the backstory. That is a backstory yeah. we want to see. Yeah. We, yeah. I was like, imagine there has to be that backstory. Yeah, yeah, because those dudes aren't, I don't see them as being the most crafty, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, with their Etsy shops or anything. Yeah. <laughs> happened yeah. in our country oh guys i mean i don't want to get into it like one of the most interesting moments in the movie for me is like those early moments where you see the trucks right mm. and you see the trucks coming with the flags and all that my son and i the day before the election are we, we live in a small town in california mountain small mountain town in california and we're driving down the small mountain um road that we're in and all of a sudden behind us comes a huge caravan of, of MAGA trucks. And on the other side are a huge caravan of not just MAGA trucks, but motorcycles. And they came and they came through the whole town and they, they had this huge, frankly, celebration. And, but it was, there was everything. There was flags, there was weapons, there was all of it. And it was, I, I remember my, my heart both kind of sank because I thought like, Oh my God, this is an exact moment from the purge. Now, when I saw it in the movie again, I almost, it almost felt like, uh, I mean, when I saw it making the movie, I felt like it's almost too much. And then when I was inside of it, it was like, Whoa, we could have even gone further. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Wow. The boo crew will be right back. Intercepted the transmission of unknown origin. Transmission out here. SOS. Human. Unknown. Alien. Certificate X. Exclusive engagement at the Odeon Leicester Square. Now. Any systematized transmission indicating a possible intelligent origin must be investigated. In space, no one can hear you scream. Yeah, working with uh, Everardo and this great, great cast, uh, what was the most challenging scene to shoot? Those of you who've seen the movie or are about to see the movie, there is a sequence in the movie which we call the Children of God sequence in that it was uh, in Children of God, there's this extraordinary you know, eight-minute take, single take. And there is a, the director and his DP had a very clear idea from the beginning. I think maybe DeMonico had it as well, which they were going to try and do one single take where the camera starts inside my sort of main best, uh, the best character for me in the movie, at least from my working standpoint was that I had this really powerful, bizarre relationship to say with a truck, right? The truck is the, the vehicle it's a main character of the movie. And weirdly enough, you know, again, Michael Mann produces this movie. It's the bumblebee truck that, you know, he uses from transformers and all this stuff. So it's very important that that was, that was the truck. And then, so the camera starts inside the truck and comes out of the truck and works its way through the whole town of El Paso and down these alleyways and all that. And it's a single take. It took, you know, days to rehearse and days to shoot. 
because it, it had to be there it had to be only one take. So the camera is literally coming and passing from one camera operator to the next as we are doing this pretty extraordinary choreography working our way through. And there are actual tanks, there are actual, you know, there's militia, there's purgers, there's military, there's everything and real, you know, not obviously live ammunition, but gunfire everywhere. There's explosions happening, there's fire. And it was the process of making that scene frankly was daunting to say the least but also really difficult and really interesting because it became sort of a dance it's like a choreography but it also was so so ambitious because it's only a couple times you know obviously 1917 does it but 1917 again you've got the great uh, cinematographer roger deakins uh, who's who's really seamlessly putting together these moments but there's some magic inside that right in in everado and the way that they wanted to do purge is that there was no magic that it was all it was all real right and so so much of what the filmmaking was in everado the talent of him and his dp was to make it so it was it was visceral and powerful so that the audience is seeing kind of what we're actually seeing as the actors going through it and that it was frankly painful i mean it was like there, everyone was beat up after every single take there was a there was a pretty intense amount of tension on set. Um, there was some some you know pretty elevated language and, and uh, you know I wouldn't say fights, but it was it was a really intense experience. And the point is that these guys were after a level of authenticity and a level of and filmmaking that's really hard to do. Um, and they the I, I don't know. It's funny. I, I don't honestly. There was some question from the team, like, how did they get away with it from an um, insurance standpoint? <laughs> were they willing to kill their actors? Because it sure seemed like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of that, like the action and tension in this film is insane. It's so immersive. And I wanted to ask you about that one scene for instance i'll just pull out a scene where you're uh, there's kind of a, a, a core speaking of choreography you're going around the truck in one scene holding a weapon and there's it's so tense emma's in the truck and everything what goes on behind the scenes to create that build-up in a scene like that what are you being told what's the director saying is there moves that you're rehearsing to just bring us there with you well, I would say that is sometimes is it has to be very choreographed because the camera work has to be so specific. But frankly, it's an interesting one that you're talking about because that was one of the earliest scenes that we shot. And basically, Everardo said, I kind of just want to throw these guys at you. Like, I'm meaning like, I don't like so the early takes, I didn't know what was happening in a way. And he wanted that like he wanted this sort of, you know, absolute so that. I don't know where there's going to be a guy right now it, over a co the course of a couple of takes, you start to know. And then they did something interesting where he would throw somebody else in right on purpose. So he, as a filmmaker was attempting to create not just the tension for the audience, but also for me as an actor where I was a little disoriented, almost to the point of like, well, where'd that guy come from? You know, <laughs> like, you know, that, like well, I wanted that. I wanted you to not have, I wanted you to be, you know, uh, uh, surprised. And so I think that's a big thing. Look, I, to get, to go to, again, the Jason Blum and the DeMonico and, and the team of people here, what they do, my understanding with these movies is that they have very clear knowledge of when they want certain jump takes, when they want certain moments, um, when they want certain scares. And then they, we shoot the movie. Maybe this is giving away too much. 
but we shoot the movie and they always plan on going back and adding about 20% more to the movie later oh, cool. because they figure out what, what's not what's missing, but it's like they purposely don't shoot certain things that they're going to go back because they know they're going to add a scare here and they're going to add the, the purge here. They're going to add these moments here, but they purposely wait until they get an audience in the room to show them the movie unfinished and to say, where do you want more of this or less of this? And usually it's not less. It's actually, they're asking, where do you need more? So they're adding some of those things later. And then you go, you go back and shoot them. It's it's very smart filmmaking. Oh, that's cool. So cool. That's Uh, that's neuro, neuro cinema. (laughs) Again, I, that might be blunt for all I know. I really, maybe he does that on all of his movies. I really don't know. I know that that they told me that like from day one, like, just so you know, there's always going to be a, a substantial amount of additional photography. Yeah. Wow. I had read that Jason Blum wanted to involve Sylvester Stallone in this film. Did you hear anything about that? You know, I did. And I think that's because there. my understanding is that there's like two different. Look, there's been a lot of talk of like the final purge. Right. And it's like that now I think there's not so much of that. that that's not quite. There's now like, oh, well, maybe not. Right. I think DeMonico has another final purge. And I think that one might be the one that involves Stallone. <laughs> so I'm not the guy to answer that question because I, I don't, I honestly don't know. But I think what you're talking about is another idea. Like that's the thing. I think, you know, this world for him is so rich. I read an interview with him just yesterday talking about how him and uh, Blum were in a room talking about this purge and that he was having ideas based on their conversation in that interview about where it's going to go. So uh, he's got stuff in his back pocket. That's for sure. The set pieces in this film are fantastic. We've alluded to it earlier, but you have these like sweeping, beautiful drone shots and towers falling in the background. It's burnt out Los Feliz Valley. How much of that was yeah. actually practically orchestrated? You know, a, su- a surprising amount, actually. Like it was, th- this was, this is a big purge film. I mean, look, you know, you start with the original, right? I had $3 million budget, right? I-, I think this is the biggest budget of all the purge films by far. But again, part of it is that they say from day one, like nobody's getting paid on this movie. And, and I mean that like it's all the way Blum works and the way DeMonico works and the way purge works is that they're so straight up. I have to say it sucks in one way, but I have great respect for it because they are frankly from day one clearly saying we are putting every single dime of this movie on the screen. And so there was, there were huge set pieces where you were like way off in the distance, seeing a fire and seeing, you know, a building that was being tore apart by purgers. That's like, how is, is that possible? And then realizing, Oh, it's because they've got these, you know, drones way above, right. To capture the, truck coming in and all the life of what's going on um, and the choreography, particularly of, you know, of frankly, America tearing itself apart was very clearly happening cinematically again, to go back to the Mad Max of it all from, from a perspective of, of, of a bird's eye perspective in a way. So I think some of it is, is you'd be surprised how much that stuff was actually real. I was surprised because it's like, wait, wait, that's actually a tank. You know, and the tank is four blocks away. And not only are you going to see the tank four blocks away, but the tank is going to keep coming. And we have to work with this tank even. And so there, there was some choreography problems sometimes because they're like, the tank started too early, you know, but it's two, three blocks away. So, you know, and it's not just 
driving it's actually shooting so yeah oh my god it's stunning to see absolutely stunning well we're gonna wrap it up here but just had to get this in session nine right often referred to as one of the scariest films of all time it's constantly being rediscovered and we're constantly finding people are always talking to us about it we're constantly talking about it yeah i mean to kick it off first of all it's the 20th anniversary of that film and it's such a cult favorite amongst horror fans but uh there's such a story to you know past in that uh, Denver State Hospital and that whole area and you know and that and going back to the witch trials while filming did you witness anything paranormal or strange in that hospital you know I am not necessarily I wouldn't say a skeptic I am you know sort of a look unless I experience it it didn't happen when it comes to that kind of thing and frankly that is the most um, transformative uncomfortable paranormal experience of my whole life on almost a daily basis. Peter Mullen is an actor I really love, the Irish actor in that, or Scottish actor in that movie. He's a non-believer and he can tell you stories of what his experience were that made him a believer. There is one in particular, which is a very difficult one for me, which is that, you know, Danvers mental institution was built with three layers of tunnels underneath it, right? There was a layer to move patients my understanding is there was a layer to move doctors that was sort of very clean and, and decent, but they're tunnels. The second layer was to move patients. And the third layer was to move the most troubled people in the history of the planet. Right. And so, and that third layer was, I don't know, 30, 40 feet below ground. So, and it was, it was a very gross place. And what had happened, I don't know if you know, and people know this story much, but what had happened is when, Reaganomics and all the things happened, and they basically ended up kicking everybody out of the mental institution throughout this country. A lot of those people ended up on the streets, but then some of them moved back to Danvers and to the mental institution that they'd been in for sometimes decades. But they couldn't move into the actual building. So what they did is they moved into the tunnels. And we, when we were filming in the tunnels, we're coming across, you know, they basically, and this is as pitch black as horrible of an environment you could possibly live in as a human being. And they're living in these you know, these I mean, places that are almost indescribable. So you'd be walking along. If people know that movie, there's no art direction in that movie. Everything is practical. They, we just discovered the place. We shot the place. They, were, they didn't create anything. All the rooms were just as we found them, all the, the paint chipping and all that different stuff. But every once in a while, you, when you're in the tunnels, you would come across something like uh, the sign of the devil pentagram, I think it's called, which is was laid out in the bones of a, of a bird, right? They'd taken, somehow they'd gone outside, found the bones, brought them in and laid them out. So you'd find these things as you were going through the tunnels. So very quickly, multiple crew members started to have experiences where they're like, we're not going to film in the tunnel anymore. It was too scary. It was too weird. And there was talk of like, well, none, none of it's paranormal. These are the, you know, homeless mental patients living in the tunnel who were doing things to the movie to try and freak the movie out. But it was totally successful. So the crew decided under no circumstances are we filming in the tunnels any longer. Particularly, they made a deal. There's going to, and then it became, it got worse and worse. So there's going to be no filming at night under any circumstances on the movie, period, because multiple things kept happening. And we were going back and, you know, drinking beer at night and talking about the day and the crew was telling stories and everyone was telling stories. It got weirder and weirder. And so one night they come to me and say, you know, it's like 530, right? The sun is setting and 
they said, we got to do the one last shot of the movie, which is the shot where I'm running through the tunnel and I turn the, you know, the camera, the flashlight around bird goes off and that's it. It's just a simple scene. It's going to take five minutes to shoot. The DP of the film is already down there. Um, we're totally set up for you. And I remember thinking, but it's getting dark. I thought the deal was we're not shooting at all during the dark. And they're like, Oh, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. So let's hustle. Let's go. So I go down and we didn't rehearse it or anything. The camera operator, who's the DP of the movie, she's got the camera on her shoulder, which is also an interesting thing because that camera was the first digital camera that was going to be used by George Lucas for um, Star Wars. And so, so session nine was not even a real movie. It was actually a test for George Lucas test very light situations outdoor and very dark situations inside. I think the whole movie was made for $500,000. It was a camera test basically. And so the director and the DP knew that they were camera testing this camera for Lucas and for that team. And so we're shooting in this basement and, or this, the second layer of the tunnel. And I remember I got down there and the DP's there and cut back a little bit, which is over the period of the movie, there was this device that was in the, in real life in Danvers, which is what they used to do the full frontal lobotomy, or they used to do electrical, um, not full frontal lobotomy. They used to do the electrocutions where it had two little um, metal prongs that were here and they'd put them on either side. And the device itself was bigger than a refrigerator. And it was, it was so big that it took like, you know, five big crew members to move this thing around. And as we were in the tunnels, one of them was in the tunnel. I remember thinking, how the hell did that thing get in the tunnel? Like, it's so difficult to move. And so in the choreography of the scene, they said, you're going to run to the electrocution device or the, and you're going to, when you get to that point, you take it, you, you just, you kind of bounce off of it and you keep going. And so I get down in the tunnel, they yell action and, I, right at the moment they yelled action, genuinely, I felt this wind happen. And the wind was like, it felt not like a real wind. It felt, frankly, paranormal. It felt like something that didn't feel correct. But I'm now running in the scene. The camera's running in front of me. She's running, carrying the scene. And I get to, the, I get to this machine. Again, probably weighs 5,000 pounds. I, I will, for the rest of my life, swear exactly this story I'm telling you right now. As we get there, she turns, she turns, she's going backwards. I come up against the thing. I put my body weight against it and I'm starting to run and the entire thing lifts up and it turns and it, the, one of the prongs hits the camera operator, who's also the DP right here, right at the exact point where the lobotomy in the movie hits her right there, knocks her backwards. She falls, cradles the camera, and as she falls, she passes entirely out. But she protects the camera. And so they immediately cut. They rush in. They take her. They take her to the hospital. She gets to the hospital. She awakens, by the way, in the ambulance, and she has no memory of what's happened. And I am so agitated, so angry, so I'm screaming at the producers and everybody because I was like, you know, she's now very badly hurt. She gets to the um, emergency room and she's got nothing, like literally nothing. There's no marks. There's nothing. 
the camera's completely fine, which is the other thing. And she, she comes back to set and she was obviously very confused because we, as we were all were confused, because like, there's no possible way that machine could lift up. And there's no possible way that not only could it lift up, it hit her precisely at this point. And to this day, it's, it's the most um, unexplained, uncomfortable experience of my entire life. And I, I really, frankly, was very angry about it for quite a while with the producers and people in that movie because I felt like it shouldn't have happened. You know, we shouldn't have been down there. And we, nobody went down there after that. That was it. Oh, my God. Wow. wow. That's insane. Oh my God. Yeah. Do you see the magic that people are talking about? Can you, can you sit and watch it anymore? You know, I, I've, I saw it recently for that. That is a movie that holds up. I mean, it's, it's just frankly, just talk about tension. Talk about just like the dynamics that I go back to with alien working class, you know, guys struggles, just all these elements that are in that movie. And yet, there's no monster, you know, there's, what is that movie, right? It's, it's a, it's a mesh of just images and, and, and these, these palpable sort of filmic tension that, that is going based on the building. Right. And so the building itself, my understanding is they tore that building down and they put up a, um, a, a condo, huge condo building that they've also had all sorts of problems with. I haven't researched it, but I've heard that from people that there's been all sorts of problems with the building that they, they, they put over it. Um, but yeah, I think that movie not just stands up. I also think, frankly, I don't know what credit to give filmmakers or actors or anything, because I think the building itself was, you know, uh, like overlying the whole story and, and sort of screaming with, with anger and pain. And like, you know, that's, that's again, to go to what makes genre filmmaking so interesting. Um, and particularly if you're telling anything that's real and that one is, you know, frankly, as real as it gets, at least in terms of the building, at least in terms of the actual location. Wow. Incredible story. Yeah, no, truly incredible. And we thank you so much for sharing that with us as huge fans of the yeah. film as well. That's amazing. The forever purge July 2nd. You got to see yes. it. It's such a yes. fun ride. And Josh, yeah. thank you so much for spending yes. time with us. Very happy to be here, guys. I appreciate what you guys are doing. And uh, I'll hopefully see you again on another one. Yeah. You got it, man. Would love to. Thank thanks you. Guys. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 239. Special thanks to our guest, Josh Lucas. Follow him at Josh Lucas on Instagram. A time of release, his new film, The Forever Purge, is in theaters now. Production tracks provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it is the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand. Chopped and sliced by Trevor Shan. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. The Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com/podcasts.